0: Good morning, River Bend. Man, I am excited to come to you guys and preach this morning. When Brian asked me to do this a couple months ago, I was ecstatic. He knew that uh, this passage is um my heart my heartbeats, and uh, little did he know this is a passage that I've really been wrestling with for the past couple months. Um, just the Lord's been really evident in using it to teach me and grow me and uh, really trying to see if I really align with what this passage states and what Paul is pouring out at his heart. And so this morning I pray that the Lord would open up your heart and help you to wrestle with this passage too. Because let's be honest, it's not an easy one. It's kind of a difficult one that Paul is pouring out his testimony to the church in Rome. Paul is pouring out his heart to them. It's a really difficult passage. and So I I pray this morning you wrestle with it. I pray that um, the Lord speaks to you, opens up your heart, and that, um, that he just shows you his truth. That anything that I say this morning would be what he is wanting me to say. So, I start with this. I don't know what you guys did yesterday for Valentine's Day. Maybe you guys had a good date. Uh, maybe you guys went to uh, drop your kids off here last night to go get some supper. Maybe you guys went to do some CrossFit um, to work out. Um, but uh, I don't know what you guys did. But yesterday, yesterday was kind of a crazy day for Holly and I amidst everything that would happen around lunch. And anyway, we come back from Memphis at around 4 um, o'clock and we decide, Holly and I, hey, we see this CrossFit post that this couple's going on Valentine's Day. It's Gates, by the way. We're like, all right, we need to go do something, all right? We need to go run, all right? So we're like, okay, 4.30, we're going to go take a jog. So uh, we leave the house and go jog around our neighborhood for about 20 minutes, and we come back, uh, and Holly's the first one to go upstairs. I'm kind of filling with the keys, and as and soon as she gets up the top of the stairs, she goes, Stephen, call 911, and I'm like, Oh, my word, what's going on? Okay, what, I don't know what to do. So, I mean, I run upstairs, and our whole apartment upstairs is filled with smoke, completely filled with smoke. Like, can't even see so much. And so, uh, and so my natural instinct is to go into, like, man mode, you know, to go into, I'm going to fix this problem. I'm going to run around. I'm going to try to see what's going on. So, uh, so Holly's doing the smart thing and open up windows, and I'm trying to go find the fire. And so I'm running, looking around, trying to find the fire. I can't find anything. All I see is smoke, and I smell it's burning in the house. And so she's like, call 911. And I'm like, I'm, I'm too ashamed to call 911. I don't want to have 1,400 people inside my house. I really don't want to do that. Let me try to find this fire. She's like, no, call 911. I was like, all right, I'm going to call Brendan Potts. <laughs> So I called my friend and chief of the fire department, and uh, I said, hey, Brandon, we've got this situation. My whole apartment is filled with smoke. I don't know what to do. I smell it, but I need your help. And so Brandon is calm at this point. I don't don't know what I would have done without Brandon at this point, but he's calm. He's like, all right, here's your steps, okay? I need you to find a smell. See, is there any flames? He said, no flames. He said, all right, I need you to find the smell. Do you smell it coming from somewhere? And I said, well, um, I smell it coming from kind of our laundry room area. And uh, my wife uh, and I kind of left the washer running while we went running. Uh, and I uh, didn't know that that wasn't a bad thing to do, um, or was a bad thing to do. Anyway, so um, he says, all right, first thing you need to do, you need to call 911 because, um, because there's probably a fire in your wall that you don't know about, and you just need to check to make sure. So I said, Brenda, I'm going to trust your wisdom. I'm going to do this. And so I called them, and I'm proud of Hernando because they responded within three minutes. I had a cop show up outside of our house. And this is when I felt really embarrassed because he came up and he said, "Well, where's the fire?" And all the smoke had gone out of our apartment at this point. And I'm like, "All right, great." So he said, "Where's the fire?" And so he goes upstairs and he checks. He said, "Okay, I smell it." And then the next, uh, I have uh, the Hernando Fire Department come and pull up behind this policeman. And they come in, and man, can I tell you, all these guys were six foot four and stocky, and here I am, I'm five, like eleven, five ten, and I'm just like overweight, and I feel so miserable by myself right now, and. And so they come in, and they look, and um, uh, they come in and bring the camera and try to find out where it is. Go up in my attic and everything. And they ended up finding out that this is where uh, this is where it is. It's coming from the washing machine. And so, uh, but we had that. We had that fireman. Then we had another fireman come after that. And then we had an ambulance come behind that. And then we had a police canine unit come up behind <laughs> that. And all these people outside of our house, sirens going on. And I was just so embarrassed. And. Uh, and, but I was proud. I was proud of our city. Proud of, um, proud of Brandon. Thankful for him. But I say this because, yesterday, like I was embarrassed to te. Like I was. Cr- I was just like I felt so small, you know. And I was. I was helpless. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't go. I couldn't find the fire. I, I had no idea what to do. And so what I do, I called a mediator. I called an intercessor and said, "Brandon, I need your help." And I say this because I really think that this kind of relates. Maybe the Lord allowed me to go through that this morning, so I can really kind of relate. A little bit with what Paul is saying in this passage. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 17 this morning. And as you turn there, I'm going to um, read it for us in just a moment. Uh, Words will be on the screen, you can follow along, then I'm going to pray for us and bring the dive right in. But uh, Let's read verse 14 through 17. Paul writes this. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Church, let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your word. Father, we thank you for the power of it. God, we thank you that your word teaches us, that it rebukes us. Father, it disciplines us. God, it makes us look more like Jesus. God, I thank you that you have revealed yourself in it. And that, Father, we, by reading it studying it, God, and hearing it preached, God, we can come to know you more. Father, God, just as you've allowed me to wrestle with this passage over the past couple months, God, I, I pray that you would um, allow us as a church, your body, God, to, to wrestle. God, to, to truly understand what Paul, God, what you're writing through Paul here, and God, what Paul's heart cry is. Father, I pray, God, that you would convict. Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior this morning, God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. Father, I pray that you would teach us, grow us, and God, may we look more like Jesus as we leave this morning. All these things we ask in your son's precious and holy name. All God's people said. So I'm going to kind of give you a little context of what um, Paul is writing from here. Brian's given us a little bit, but just to kind of remind us, Paul's writing to the church in Rome from Corinth around 57 AD. He's writing to the church in Rome when Nero is emperor. And as Brian has said, Nero is, is persecuting Christians like Crazy. He's is putting them up on stakes and putting tar and pitch on them and lighting them up to light his fire and his I mean light his garden. There's persecution rampant in Rome at this point for, for the church of Christ. And so he is he is writing to these people who are under intense persecution. And I believe that this part of Romans, Romans 14 through 17, is is one of the most Convicting passages for the purpose of the church. Paul writes about sin, Paul writes about salvation, sanctification, the spiritual uh, gifts of the believers. But I think here, and also a little bit, and also Romans 10, we'll get to there. But I think this is the most convicting statement of the purpose of the church. And so Paul is writing about the power of the gospel. He's writing about the power of the gospel and why the gospel is important and pertinent to the church. And so he's writing to the church in the midst of persecution. He's reminding them this is the power of the gospel and this is what it is. And so as what Brian said a couple weeks ago, we can look at the end of Romans and see in Romans 15 why Paul is writing this. Because you see, Paul has longed to go to Spain. Paul has this desire. Paul has this urge to want to go and preach the gospel where Jesus has never been named. He wants to go to the ends of the earth he's gone to as far as he knew that the earth existed in Jerusalem. And he, goes, he wants to go all the way west to Spain as far as he knew that the earth existed. And he wants to preach the gospel from far east to far west. And so he's heading out west and he's riding to church in Rome wanting to go. And as far as we know, I mean, we don't really know if he ends up in Rome to actually get to see the church. But we do know that he ends up in Rome in chains. He's put in his house and arrested and chains, so that he can go before uh, before the before the, uh, the leaders in Rome because he's been preaching the gospel. And we don't necessarily know if he always if he gets to Spain, but we do know that there's a church in Spain that claims that Paul got there. We don't know the end of his life. We know that he ended up dying about ten years after writing this letter, maybe a little less. But this is this is Paul's desires to go to Spain. So he's writing to the church in Rome because he wants Rome, the church in Rome, to be his kind of an ascending mobile uh, home base in the West. He wants Rome to rally around the gospel and support him and encourage him inside of this mission to go west. And so he's writing essentially a missionary support letter. Maybe you guys have gotten one. Maybe you guys have received one. Some of you guys may have written one. He's writing a missionary support letter asking for support. And what better way to ask for support than write out this whole thesis of what the gospel is and the beauty of the gospel, right? So he writes this letter to Rome, and he wants them to to understand. This is what the gospel is. This is what I believe, and this is why I want you guys to support me. So Paul, in these three verses, in these three verses, he he writes out these things, these uh, the reasons that the gospel is so powerful. So the first reason I want you to see comes from verse fourteen to fifteen, and it says this: that the gospel compels us to give our life. The gospel compels us to give our life. Let's. Look down at verses 14 to 15. It says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. He says, I'm under obligation and I'm, I'm eager to preach. Under obligation, I'm eager to preach. It's, it's obvious in this passage and also in verses 1 through 4 that the gospel has compelled Paul to give his life. Because look, look at verses 1 through 4. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. The word servant that has talked about there is doulos. means the lowest of the low of servants. Paul has said that I'm willing to do whatever it takes. Whatever Christ has asked me to do, I'm willing to do it. I want, I'm willing to be a doulos of Christ Jesus. called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his pro- prophets concerning the Son. And it goes on to vi- verse 5, through Jesus Christ our Lord, through we have received grace and apostleship. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. This last verse is kind of Paul's verse theme. That my life is to, is to be about bringing obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. So we can see clearly the, that the gospel has compelled Paul to give his life. His whole life is about bringing obedience for the sake of his name amongst all nations. But why, why does this gospel compel Paul? Why, why is it so compelling? Why does it push Paul to want to give his life? And I submit to you that it is in verse 14 that we see this. Let's look back in verse 14, and it says this, I am under obligation. Paul is obligated. In, in Greek, and a lot of times throughout the New Testament, uh, the writers will use Greek terms that really have two different meanings. Uh, It's to give richness and depth. Jesus did this so much throughout his gospels that they give kind of two meanings. And and for us in our English language, it kind of looks ambiguous. Like, why can't it just be one or the other? But a lot of times the Holy Spirit inspired this so there'd be a deeper meaning. So I want to give you this word. Verse 14, I'm under obligation. The word here is opheletes. The word is opheletes. It means an ower or a person that is indebted. Not just an obligation as a, I guess I have to do it, but as, an, as, as a deeper than that. It's person indebted, a person that, that owes. And it goes even further than that because Paul uses not the verb form of this, but he uses the noun. Check this out. He says, I am the ower. I am a person indebted. In other words, I'm using this noun because it's characteristic of my life. It's not just something that has happened to me, but it's, it is who I am. I am indebted. I am a debtor because of this. And so I'm going to, it says in here, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and the barbarians, but I'm going to kind of talk about one of the other uh, deeper meanings of this first, and then we'll go into that second portion. Because this word also used, uh, Jesus used in Matthew chapter 18. You don't have to turn there, I'm just going to kind of tell you the story. But this is the parable, this is the parable of the unforgiving servant. So this is the story that Jesus tells, and he says this, that there was a king who wanted to settle his accounts with some of his servants that had, had debts with him. And so one of his servants goes up to him, goes up to the king, and uh, the king says to him, you owe me 10,000 talents. Now, a talent was 20 years worth of wages. So this servant owed him 200,000 years worth of wages, an insurmountable amount of debt. This dude could never pay this off in his entire life. And so the king, the king says, look, you can't pay this off. I'm going to have to sell your, you. I'm going to have to sell your wife. I'm going to have to sell your kids as slaves to even be able to pay off this debt. And then that won't even be enough. And so the servant, is, it just falls on his knees in, in humility. He says, oh, king please, king, please have mercy on me. Please have mercy on me. I'll, I'll pay it back to you somehow. Please just have mercy on me. So this king looks at this servant And it says, and Jesus says that he had pity and compassion on this man. And he says to the servant, go, it's paid in full. The story continues on, and we'll look at that a little bit later, but I want to stop here because I I believe this is what Paul is really trying to say. Now, the story is actually about, Jesus uses it to talk about forgiveness, but the first beginning portion really kind of helps us to understand what Paul is meeting here. Because you see, here's here's the connection, here's the story that, um, and this is what Jesus was trying to get out with his disciples and those that were listening, that this king represented God, the most high king, and that the servants that all owed a debt were representative people. Because you see, Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have a sin debt that we cannot pay because even one sin separates us from this God. And so we come before the king, we come before God, and we have this huge debt that we owe, 10,000 talents, 200 years worth of debt, this debt that we cannot pay. And we go before the king and we say, Father, please have mercy on me. And we believe, and when we believe and we give our life to Christ and we say, God, would you have mercy on me and forgive of this debt? This is what he says. He says, my son has paid that in full. You are free. Go. Go. Here's the picture. Paul is saying this, that I once was morally in debt. I was a sinner in debt. That my sin made me completely in debt before God. Here I am. I stand before the king as as an enemy of him, as completely in debt. And I am a debtor. He says, morally, I am a debtor. But here's the beautiful thing. It kind of sums this up and says, Paul once was morally a transgressor, but now because of Christ, he is spiritually a messenger. The gospel has compelled him to give his life. He says, I'm under obligation first to my king because he has raised me out of this debt. He has paid for my debt in full. I owe him my life because of what he has done. I am spiritually in debt to him. And so because of that, I go. Because Christ has given his all for me, so do I give my all, my life to Christ. This is the first kind of deeper meeting, but here's the second meaning. And this is what he talks about here, and he says, verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. Both to Greeks and barbarians, I'm under obligation to them. And so this is where the story in Matthew 18 continues, because you see this debtor um, that was forgiven by the king. He leaves and he goes out and immediately he finds another one of his fellow servants in the field. And this fellow servant owed this debtor only about 200 or 100 denarii, which is 100 days worth of wage. 100 days versus his debt that just got forgiven, 200,000 years worth of wage. And so this servant uh, that has this debt of 100 days can't pay it and And so the servant that has just been forgiven looks at the servant that owes him and says, I'm sorry, I can't forgive you. I'm sorry, I can't can't take this. I'm going to have to take you as my slave. And you're going to pay it off this way. And the message gets back to the king, and the king hears that this man that he has just forgiven of $200,000, 200,000 years worth of debt has not allowed this man of 100 days worth of debt to be forgiven. And he says, I revoke that. I mean... That's essentially what it is. It's is—it's—it's—it's it's that he says, how can this happen? I mean, I don't understand. How can this happen? That you've been forgiven this insurmountable debt, and yet you want to allow this man of 100 days worth of debt to be free and to be forgiven. And so here's the picture here. Jesus is teaching his disciples about forgiveness, and he says that as you have been forgiven, you've been forgiven much, so you forgive others. And so here's, here's the picture that Paul is kind of painting here, is that, that as we have received grace, as we have received grace, Freedom, And as we have received life because Christ has given his life, so do I owe my life to those people that have never heard of him so that they can hear that this Jesus can come and free them from their sin. So do I owe them my life. He says I am under obligation to both Jews and Greeks, to Greeks and barbarians, because I have received life. He says, I have received it. Our obligation is to tell others that they are are in the same boat as us before Christ, that there is a master that can free your debt. And he's a master of compassion. He writes to the church in Corinth, Paul does in verse 16 of chapter 9. He says, it is a necessity for me to preach the gospel. He says, I'm going to become all things to all people that I might win. Some to Christ. So the gospel compelled the gospel compelled Paul to give his life. Why? I want, I want you guys to see this. The gospel compelled Paul to give his life and compelled Paul to go as far east as he knew to as far west as he knew to go and share the gospel. Why? Because Christ has spread his sin as far east as from the west. He wanted people to know that this Christ is a good king. He can forgive. He is under obligation to God, to preach the gospel. He's under obligation to Jews and Greeks and barbarians that have never heard to preach because he has been freed, so should he go and tell them that they can be free. But secondly, Paul tells us here in verses in verse 16, he says that the gospel alone is sufficient for salvation. The gospel alone is sufficient for salvation. Let's look at verse 16 and, and read what it says. Verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why, why was the gospel so special to Paul? What, what, what is it about the gospel that compels him? Why is it such a compelling thing? Yes, he's been freed out of slavery from sin, but, but why is it such a compelling thing to him? And what is the gospel? So if you have a copy of God's word, keep your finger in Romans. And I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul writes out clearly for the church in Corinth what the gospel is. As you're turning there, it's on the screens too. I'm going to go ahead and read it. But verses 1 through 5 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 say this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you which you have received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain." Verse 3, for I deliver to you as of first importance what also I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and that he appeared to five hundred others. This is what Paul has laid out for the gospel. He has said first that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that on the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to the disciples, to Cephas, to Peter, and to 500 other people. This is what the gospel is. But if this is what the gospel is, why is it such a compelling thing? Why is it necessary for the gospel to save? What is it about the gospel that, that does save us, and why is it such pertinence for us to go and share this message? This is what it says in verse 16, and I believe this is why Paul is urged to go and preach the gospel. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. The power of God for salvation. See, this word in the Greek is the word dunamai. Kind of sounds like the word for dynamite, right? Dunamai, dynamite. When we think dynamite, we think big explosions and power and strength, right? Well, this word here in the Greek, dunamai, actually literally means to be able. To be able. Church, I don't want you to miss this. Because if we put that definition into this passage, it reads like this. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the ability of God for salvation. It is the ability of God for salvation. Here's the implications of that, church. It is, if the gospel is the ability of God to save, this means that he cannot save outside of the gospel. You think, well, that's kind of harsh. God's omnipotent, right? Yes, he is. He's all-powerful. He's all-strong, but he cannot save a part of the, from the gospel because this is his will. We know that his will cannot be thwarted, cannot be changed. God is not changing. God cannot save apart from this gospel. This plays a huge role once we get into Romans chapter 1, verses 18, where he says that nobody is without excuse. Because if there was a way that God could allow the innocent, which there aren't any innocent people, but if God could allow the people that have never heard the gospel to get into heaven, then there would be another way, contrary to Jesus, to get into heaven. And Jesus preached this truth himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Church, this is why it's so important us to take this message for the ability of God to save is the gospel. There is no other way outside of the gospel. You say, man, that's kind of harsh on God. No, this is beautifying and magnifying of our God because the gospel is contrary to, to anything that exists. There is no other religion that says that there is a God that stepped down to, to intercede for his people. All other religions, a God is a deity above that is not personal with his people. But this is is the truth of the gospel, that our God would step down out of heaven to save us, even when there is nothing worth saving. I asked Sean to sing that song, All I Have is Christ, because it pictures perfectly what we are. I had nothing that you should own. I was a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, then I would refuse you still. Church, gospel is the ability of God to save because before time began he planned that he would send his son to come it is the power it is the ability of God to save and I want you also to notice something else that if if this is the ability of God to save the gospel is the ability of God to save it is the gospel alone it is the gospel alone. It's not the gospel plus works. It's not the gospel plus going to church. It's not the gospel plus Sunday morning worship. It's not the gospel plus doing good deeds. It's not gospel plus baptism or gospel plus horoscopes. It's not gospel plus anything. It is gospel alone that saves church. Gospel alone saves. Jesus' blood alone atones. There's nothing good that we could ever do to measure up to the holiness of our Father. Nothing. Nothing. It is the gospel alone that saves. And this is why it's such a heart-wrenching thing, church. This is why Paul says that he is not ashamed. That he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power to save. It is what has saved him. Church, do we believe this? Do we believe that it is the ability of God to save? The reason I say that I've wrestled with this because you think of the gospel and you think of some of the things that Jesus teaches and you think about stuff like... uh, uh, like, like Jesus saying, if you must come after me, you must deny yourself daily and, and take up your cross. Or Jesus said, if you want to be a part of me, you must drink my blood and eat of this flesh. And then we think of, we think of the gospel, and we think how kind of ludicrous it sounds in a way that, that, uh, that this man would come and live a perfect, holy life, that he would die and then be raised back from the dead. And, and, and church, I, I think of this whenever I tell this gospel to people that have never heard. I think, man, if I'm hearing this for the first time, if I'm, I've never had a background of who Jesus is, I've never had a background of the gospel, I've never had a background of the Bible, how am I perceiving this? How am I understanding this? And I think, okay, God, I, you, you tell us to share it, you tell us this, it's your power to say, but God, it kind of sounds crazy. And that's when it depends upon the Holy Spirit and praise the Lord that it does. Church, we are called to share this message. We're called to preach these truths because that's exactly what it is. It's truth. Amen? It is God's truth. The Holy Spirit convicts. The Holy Spirit opens up hearts. And our job is to present the gospel. And church, there's nothing more satisfying than seeing someone who is lost come to Christ. Amen? I want to end this section as we go into our third point. I want us to... I'm just going to let God's word speak for itself. Um, I'm going to read a couple passages. They'll be on the screen. But first, what I want us to look at is 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 9. And Paul says this in 2 Timothy 1, keeping in mind the verses that we've just read, that he's not ashamed of the gospel. Verses 1, 8 through 9 says this, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy calling. Check this out. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he has given us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Romans one through 18-24. I'm mean, sorry, First Corinthians 1, 18-24. It says this. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. You see what I'm saying? The folly—it's—it's it's foolishness to those who don't understand. It's foolishness, but to us, to be that are being saved, is the power of God, right? For God chose through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Verse 22: For Jews demand signs and Greeks and seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That alone, the gospel alone. Cre- Preach Christ crucified alone, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who recall, both Jews and Greeks. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In church, I, I really think that this last passage of Scripture is really why Paul says that he's not ashamed. Mark chapter 8 says this in verses 34 through 38. Once again, the words will be on the screen. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. He says this, Jesus speaking to his disciples, and he calls a crowd to them. He says, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Well, what can a man give in return for his soul? Verse 38, please catch this. Jesus speaking these words. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed. when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Church, when we stand before Christ, are we can be, be able to say and hear the words. Hear Christ say the words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Church, that is what my desire is. Are we living every day as as for the gospel? Are we living every day so that people can see in our lives and hear in our words that this gospel is enough and this gospel has saved us? Is this the reason that we are living our life? Are we living in shame of the gospel? The third reason that Paul gives that the gospel compels him to give his life is this. In verse 17, Paul writes, the gospel is received by faith and ends in faith. Let's look at Romans 117, the last verse. He says, For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul has already talked about in the previous chapter, or in the previous verses, that he's under obligation because of what Christ has done, about how Christ has taken his sin and given him life, he's under obligation to, to others because they are in need of this gospel. He's, he's already said that he's not ashamed of it because God cannot save apart from the gospel, that this is the power of God to save. But also he, he says in verse 17, he kind of finishes out before he goes on um, to talk about the unrighteous and the ungodly, he finishes it out with this, of what is characteristic of the person who does receive Christ. Because the gospel is received by faith and ends in faith. Paul answers the question here as to what happens when a person receives the gospel. He doesn't end the story in receiving the gospel, but shows the new stance and new life of the believer and how dramatically life-changing it is. So let's look at this kind of piece by piece. In verse 17, he says, For in it, in the gospel, the, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. Let's take that little segment there. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith. Remember how I said the Greek words are kind of underneath with two different pictures sometimes. This is kind of another one of those. Um, the righteousness of God could talk about the characteristic of God. It could talk, talk about his holiness. It could talk about how he is just in punishing the sinner. It could talk about these things, but um, that's one of them. And maybe it's a double meaning here that Paul is talking about. But I think, uh, I think in this one, I think Paul is really trying to hit home that the righteousness of God is what we receive whenever we place our faith in him. And so for us to kind of understand this passage, I'm I'm going to put some more verses on the screen from Ephesians 2. I'm going to read it and we're going to come back and look at this section. But Ephesians 2, 1 through 9 says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at the work and sons of disobedience. He's talking about us before we knew Christ, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse 3 continues, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Remember I talked about that man in Matthew 18 that couldn't pay that debt This is what we were. We were children of wrath, that we were in debt because of our sin. And our sin, as Romans 6.23 says, that that the wage of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That our wages, what we deserve in the wages is eternal death, eternal separation. We were by nature children of wrath. And praise the Lord for verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2. And it says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And it keeps getting better. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And so this is what I think Romans 17 is getting towards. For by grace you have been saved through what, church? Faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Our salvation begins in faith. But what I love in Hebrews is it says that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega of it. But our, our, our salvation begins in faith, that, that whenever the Lord shows us, goodness and his mercy that we are they're able to respond in faith and we give our life to him and praise the lord this is what happens it's called the great exchange that our sin that we owe to christ is placed on him at the cross and christ's righteousness that he lived as a perfect holy life as the perfect lamb that was slain he puts upon us and we are no longer looked as sinners before a holy god but we are looked at his son as his son who is perfect and holy that our life, even though we will continue sinning, even though we will continue falling out of relationship with God and coming and asking for that relationship to continue to be restored, we never lose stance. We never lose stance with Christ that we were declared righteous before Him. We will never lose the stance that we are declared righteous. And this is what Paul is saying here, that the righteousness of God will come from faith. That when we place our faith in him, praise God, that Christ's righteousness is placed on us. Paul writes again in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, that, um, he says that he made him, he made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Praise God for that. Amen? So it's the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, but it's also revealed uh, for faith. This, this term is literally meaning just... In beginning and ending in faith. And this is what I love. I know the old hymn that says, Praise the Lord that one day our faith will be sight. Just as we sang just a moment ago, That one day that we will get to see Him face to face because our faith will become sight. We will get to see the Redeemer. We'll get to see the one who purchased us. And we'll get to see the God who has magnified Himself in our life. And the one who's created us and sustains us. We'll get to stand before Him holy and righteous. And you know what? One day we're going to stand with myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. We're going to stand with people from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. And church, I want to be a part of the person that goes and tells every tribe about Him. I want to be the person that tells my neighbor about Christ. I want to be the person that tells my coworker about Christ. Churches, that's your please, that's your cry. You can come and stand before the king and say, God, I've done everything I have to be able to live for your gospel. And everything in my life reigned out as truth for you. That God, everything that I have, I've submitted my life, that I'm under obligation to my coworker. I'm under obligation to my friends, family members, I'm under obligation to the, to the world, every tribe, every nation, because you have saved me. I'm under obligation to you, God. Take my life, whatever you want to do, I'm yours. Is this our plea, church? Is this our cry? I hope that it is. But last thing, one day when we stand, our faith will be sight. And this is why we go because of Romans 10, verses 13 through 17. Where I'm going to end, right here, Romans chapter 10. If you have a copy of God's Word, turn it to to Romans chapter 10. We're going to end with these words. It's the other portion that I was talking about that I think is a challenging and convicting portion uh, that Paul writes for the church. And he says this in Romans 10. We'll start in verse 13. It says, For everyone... Who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Verse 17 goes back to Romans 1.17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So how can, how can the gospel come from faith? How can the gospel and salvation come from faith? It comes from us as the church going and telling these people that have never heard about the faith that we have in Christ. Ryan said a couple weeks ago, church, we are plan A, there is no plan B. And I think about in Romans 18, the people that have never heard that, that they're, still, they're still with need because they're without excuse, because the, 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 the creation cries out to its creator. That they are without excuse. God has written his law on their hearts, Romans says. That these people are, are in dire need of hearing. Church, I pray that some of you will be sent. <laughs> I pray that some of you, even with your families, will be sent to go to the hard-reached places. I pray that you will be sent to go to your co-worker. I pray that you'll be sent to go to your family and tell who he is about Christ. Tell who Christ is and what he's done in yourself. Church, I want to pray for us. Father, we love you. God, we thank you that you are good. God, and we don't understand how your word says that you can be both the just and the justifier god that you can you can be holy and in uh and and that's, god you can be holy and god you can be just and followed but yes at the same time god that you can I uh, look at Christ, and God, that you can pardon us. Father, we don't understand how this works, Father, that your blood can cover us, but God, we know it is truth, and God, we know that we can stand before you as your sons and your daughters, Father, if, they would, if we would receive your free gift in and faith. And so, Father, I pray that this morning, God, that if there's anyone that has never placed their faith in you, God, that you would convict their heart, show them, God, who you are, and God, show them your grace and your goodness, and, Father, may you draw them to yourself. And Father, I pray for us. God, is your church. Father, you've given us the privilege. God, you've given us the blessing. God, you have... Given us the responsibility, God, of taking this gospel, Father, to the ends of the earth. God, may we have a heart like Paul that we would desire to go where You've never been named. So that, Father, when we stand before You, and God, we're worshiping with the myriads and myriads thousands and thousands of thousands. Father, when we stand before You, worshiping with every tribe and every tongue and every nation, the Father, we can look and see what You have done in our lives. The Father, we have proclaimed Your gospel. We have lived unashamed of who You are. God, may our life reflect that. God, may we be like Paul, and God, may we say, whatever you are, God, whatever you want from me, God, whatever you want to do with my life, God, may you use me. May you use my ransomed life. So, Fathers, we sing these words to you. God, I pray that you be glorified and honored, and Father, may you teach us, God, show us how you want us to be a part of your kingdom. Church, maybe if you've never placed your faith in Christ, God, Church, I ask you that you would come. Uh, be, I, I ask that you would come and give your life to Him. If, if maybe that you are struggling with, Lord, do you want me to go? Do you not want me to go? Maybe you would come and stand uh, at this altar and say, Father, whatever you want to use of my ransom life, God, may you use. It. Church, maybe you're going through an issue. Maybe you're going through a hard time, God. Church, maybe you're going through a trial gospel is powerful our God is a God of comfort our God is a God of grace and peace our God is a God of love maybe you want to come and kneel at this altar this morning and maybe you want to say God I surrender this to you this is yours, maybe it's the loss of a family member, maybe it's the loss of a job and maybe you say Father I give my job to you I give my family to you Father, may you use me as a minister. God, may you use me as a preacher of your word. And may I not be ashamed. As we sing, would you come, church?